I have a theory as to why you're here. Is there anybody in the room who is a paid professional children's minister? That's, that was my theory. We don't have a lot of those in the Church of Christ. Uh, and we have guys like Tony and that kind of thing, thank God for them. But just in general, in most churches, that's not an option. Right? And so, my theory is, I could be totally wrong, my theory is that you're here because you care about those kids. And my theory is that you want them to have uh, an active, vibrant faith that sustains them and means something and changes their life. And you want them to have a faith beyond just while they're growing up at your church, but when they go out into the world, you want them to have something that's going to be able to sustain them. And I further think that you're here because you think that your being here makes a difference in that. That somehow you riding on that stupid van with them and sitting through the jumpy, clappy songs and, and listening and watching movie clips and all that stuff. And thank God for everybody who does that. Okay? They're all actually friends of mine. But you think, this is not geared for you, right? You think that your presence makes a difference in their faith. Now, what I want to run you through, because that's who I thought you were, and I wound up being right, um, which does happen from time to time. Uh, what I want to run you through is a model on how I believe faith develops. Okay, and it's very important, and it may be challenging to you, but if you care that much about these kids' faith, this is something that's very important. Now, it is a model, and models, as we know, are only accurate to a point. Okay, if you look at, you ever seen the model of the atom, right? It's got the little sphere in the middle and all the lines and other little spheres. The, the more that we're able to look at a microscopic level, you know that atoms are actually fairly unpredictable and don't look a lot like that. There's not these little spheres and lines. and It's not really how they work. But it's a conceptual model that helps us understand a little bit from our perspective what's going on. That's what this is. There are going to be exceptions to it. I understand that. But I found this to generally be true. It generally is how faith develops. Now, if you want to know, just so, so you know where I get my stuff, um, a book that I at this point actually heard the author present the material to is called, If I Really Believe, Why Do I Have These Doubts? Uh, it's by a guy named Lynn Anderson, who used to be a minister at a church over in uh, uh, Abilene, I think it was. Um, he, he credits a guy named Westerhoff, which has a P before the F, which is weird, uh, as the guy who actually did the original research. Um, but if you want to read more on this, and actually there's an excellent book just outside of this, you can tell this from the title, it's a good book. Um, it says more outside of this. That's a great book to look at, uh, and it will unpack this a little bit more. Um, but that's kind of what we're going to go through here. So, stages of faith development. Now, first of all, we're going to call it experienced faith. And at any point in any of this, if you have a question, a comment, any of that, that's totally cool. Experienced faith. And we're going to call this faith's infancy. Now, in each one of these, we're going to give them sort of an age indicator. That does not mean because this is the one that infants have. Okay? It's sort of an analogical thing where we're saying, if faith was a person, this would be sort of when it was a baby. There can be, before I tell you anything about it, there can be 75-year-old people in this level, in faith's infancy. Okay? Just so you know. Don't let that throw you. Um, I think this is true of infants. Uh, if we're talking about infants who grew up in the church like I did, my dad was a preacher, I was there every time the doors were open, I, I had this kind of faith. All right? Um, faith's infancy. If experience before it is chosen, okay, I'm, uh, let me tell you this, I've got a daughter that will be three in June, okay, she comes to church because we take her to church, and, and it's not like we're forcing her either, I mean, I talked to her, I, she, she woke up this morning, like, well, I woke her up this morning, because we were getting up a little earlier, and I picked her up, and she was all, you know, laying on me with her 
with her eyes closed and sort of whining and not wanting to wake up. And I said, we're going to go to the kids' rally. And she perked up and looked at me like this and said, and my church? And your church? And she's ecstatic. It's not because she understands the Jesus thing. It's not because she's got the intricacies of faith worked out. It's because faith is something that she experiences because it's what's around her. Okay, she's two. She still wants to stick a quarter in the electrical socket. She doesn't have the whole church thing figured out. But this is the experience of faith around her. And so she has a a level of faith, a sort of faith, because it is her experience. She exists inside of that. Does that make sense? Now, it's a doorway, not a destination. And I don't think I'm going to get any argument on this, right? Because everybody knows you don't want your faith to completely exist of, of that for the rest of your life, right? It, it would be horrible. Because you, have, you don't even really know the what's of it. You don't have any idea of the whys of it. It's just something that exists around you. And if that situation changes, your faith's gone, right? If your experience changes, you're done. So obviously, I think it's, I think it's a good and valid doorway. I think it's the doorway that the vast majority of people take. Yeah, a good example of this, actually, is to take it outside of just the small children thing. As if you've ever been involved with uh, the work camp we do or some work camp somewhere, you have these people who don't, a lot of them don't have any connection with church or faith at all. But suddenly for a week, faith is happening around them. Their house is getting painted. There's no good reason they can figure out why it's getting painted, right? Nobody's trying to shove any information down their throat or trying to convince them anything, but it's happening around them. They wind up at this banquet at the end of the week, and faith happens around them. And you'll even hear from their comments. I mean, we have, we've recorded like, interviews with them and stuff, and they'll say things. And I, you know, we know that they're not, they don't go to any church or anything like that, but they're saying these comments that are faith-filled comments. Does that make sense? They haven't thought all these stuff, stuff out. They haven't made any kind of decision. A lot of them go on to. But they, they, the doorway of it was the experience of this faith that happened around them. Uh, there was actually this plan in sort of the evangelical churches um, several years ago that I just think is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Uh, they, they thought, they had this plan, this is real, it sounds like I'm making it up, I'm not. They had this plan where they were going to set up a special kind of laptop, okay, a laptop computer. They were going to parachute it down into the jungles of like Central America and the remote parts of Africa. And, and, and the idea was that the tribal people, and I guess they knew the languages, the tribal people were going to happen upon this device. And when they did, there was some kind of trigger that the device was going to give them a gospel presentation. And then they would obviously just go, oh, okay. And then they would be converted to Christianity. Beyond the fact that the laptop didn't have arms in the pool to baptize them, do you see any other problems with that? There's no experienced faith, right? There's no experience. And this is what's, this is what's tough about us. I'm going to talk about this a little later assuming I'm not as long-winded as it was last time. We've reduced faith to a matter of information and ideas you simply agree with in your head, and I'll submit to you that is not the biblical picture. I'll submit to you that in the Bible you see people who embody the gospel, who actually were good news to people, whether you agree with their ideas or not. Let me go ahead and throw this out there. I didn't say this to the last group. I'm adding stuff. This is not good. You can do this research. It's not hard to do. For waiters and waitresses, the most dreaded day for them to work, bar none, no comparison, Sundays. The busiest time, the most demanding and rudest customers, 
-hmm. and the lowest pits. Mm -hmm. Or none. That's across the board. And you can even find research about where there's some big Christian convention in the town. <coughs> Same thing. Dread it. See the little name tags coming in? They just cringe. Right? There's all kinds of these horror stories about you know the quarter in the track. It's like, you know, it's just... You're going to presume one day to talk to them about God's unmerited favor. You're going to presume to talk to them one day about this um, selfless love that God's offering. You're going to presume to tell them about the good news of Jesus when their impression of Jesus is he creates people that seem to be more selfish than they were before they came to Jesus. You're going to give them this information that doesn't match up with their experience. What if, you know, what if it's bad service? What if it's legitimately bad service? You know what I've made myself do? Not that I'm an example of anything. And that there's an easy thing for me to do. It's frequently not. I actually tip better when it's bad service. Somebody gave me bad service. Sometimes they give me bad service, right? They know it. And I assume that one day somebody's going to talk, talk to them about unmerited favor. Maybe they won't remember it at all, but maybe they'll have something to reference, right? Because as Christians, we're supposed to be good <coughs> news. And I'm convinced that while the disciples didn't get a whole lot, I mean, the whole lot of they didn't get until way later, right? But I'm convinced that if Jesus had never taught them a word, just from living with the guy, they would have known an awful lot of it, right? Because he was, he embodied his message. It wasn't just information that he spit out for people to agree with in their heads. And if you want to reach a world for Jesus, then we're going to have to start embodying this stuff. We're going to have to be grace. We're going to have to be forgiveness. We're going to have to be the selfless kind of love. So that people have a clue what we're even talking about when we bring it up. They have to experience our faith before they can learn about our faith. I believe that. I believe that. Because why do they care about your information if you're not actually good? <coughs> and we'll talk about that more. <coughs> so that's the doorway. Next, I think you get is what I call affiliative faith. Affiliative faith from the root word affiliate. And we're going to talk about this as faith's childhood, okay? Again, this does not mean only children have this. But this, this is a good way to, to make it the analogy. Affiliate faith. They believe because the group believes. Here's how that plays out. I believe this because my mom and dad believe this. This is what my family believes. I believe this because this is what the church that I go to believes. I believe this because this is what my youth group believes. They're really going, what? They don't have much why. They don't have much why. And this why, I don't mean they can't point to a bunch of scriptures or pull out an apologetics book. I'm talking about a much deeper why than that. I remember being in this stage of faith. I remember being on the school bus and having these nine-year-old incredible theological debates. Right? And we lay all this stuff out, and I knew I was right. And the other kid knew that they were right. Couldn't give any real good reasoning for it, but we knew we were right. And we would come down harder than, by the way, harder than anybody who taught us that stuff. We were more amped about it than they would have been, right? Or they were when they taught us. But we just were, were so defensive of the stuff that we're just, 
Because I believe this because the people around me believe it. Now, and you might say, okay, you might say, you might be tempted to say, well, yeah, that's what we're going for. End of model. I want our kids to believe what we believe. I want them to believe what we believe. And if we can just get them there, we're done. What's the problem with that? You tell me. Is there a problem with it? They don't really understand why they believe. How will they teach anybody if they don't understand why? Well, cults, I mean, cults make a good practice of, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, obviously, but, but cults make a good practice of never getting around to the one. I mean, they're real good at, at instilling this. Um, you believe this because, and it's just crazy stuff, right? They believe all kind of crazy stuff. You read about the David Koresh thing and the stuff that he got them to buy into? Mm-hmm. Nobody reasoned that stuff out. They believe because they were so strongly a part of this group, and this is what the group believed. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. They, they, they recruited fairly successfully, but the same way, it, it, there's no substance to it, right? There's just a surface level. Yes. I think the problem, biggest problem with that is with when they're kids, they do that, but when they grow into an adult, then they fall away because they don't know the deeper faith and they just know all the rules and regulations right. of it. But they don't know, they don't have that inner, you know, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Well, in, in the last class, they point out something really interesting that I hadn't thought up enough to put this stuff together, so I'm going to steal it. Uh, but I do credit them. Um, you know what's going to happen? If I believe because the people around me believe, maybe my church or my family, blah, 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 I'm eventually going to graduate from high school. And I'm eventually, whether I go to college in town or somewhere else, whether I go to a secular school or a Christian school, it doesn't really matter for this point. The people around me are going to change. My relationships are going to change. Matter of fact, the scary thing is when I get to college, again, whether I go to Christian college or a secular college, I get to have some level of choice in, my, in who's around me at that point. And if my belief systems are simply based on the social network that I'm a part of, that kind of faith falls apart pretty quick as soon as you change this, the social system, right? So I, I think that's an excellent point. There's nothing, there's no substance. It's just, okay, who, who am I around now? Now I'll dogmatically defend that. Um, anything else? Any other problems you see with it? Well, one thing you said about we're done, we're never done. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get there too. Done. But we imply that sometimes, don't we? I mean, I, I, in all my life, I've never had anybody overtly teach me that you get to a certain point, you're done, and you're done, and you just hang on. But it's very strongly implied. It's been very strongly implied to me uh, through different. You know, my dad was great. My dad's always this. My dad's been a preacher all my life, and he's always this, you know, always searching, always saying, "Hey, this is this is bigger than we can get our mind around." But here's what I think. Here's here's what it looks like. Um, and, and Dad wound up being a more traditional dad than I am, but I owe my faith to him in a very significant way um, because he never implied, okay, you get to this plateau, and then you just hang on until Jesus comes. But we do. We say, okay, well, we've got all the knowledge, and if you can just grasp all this knowledge and you have faith, and you just need to hold on to it and defend it. That's very problematic, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more in a little while. Anything else that you see as a problem? Well, it needs to be true. I mean, you've got to have something to back up your beliefs. Yeah. As far as proving it is truly in your own mind. Yeah, because people can, I mean, people can believe this stuff very strongly that isn't true simply because the social network around them believes it. I mean, you can see examples of that all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been horrible things. Look at, um, gosh, look at, look at the church in Germany at the time of Hitler. Do you realize that hardly any Christian in Germany said, wait a minute, 
There's something wrong with this uh, killing Jews, blah, blah, blah thing. Hardly anybody. you got guys like Bonhoeffer and some guys like that, but they were the vast minority. Most churches there went with it. So yeah, it's usually problematic. you got to point to stuff that's actually true, and how do you get there if, you're, if your faith is simply based on the people around you? I mean, even if they are true, those networks are going to change eventually. You're going to have different relationships, and that's going to change what you think if that's your entire system. Now, remote, remote. This is a normal stage of development, but don't get stuck here. This is, I, I believe this is normal and important. I think, kid, I think kids or adults have to go through this phase. I think it's the way it naturally develops. But we cannot let them simply camp out there and think that that's faith, that that's mature faith. It is faith, but we can't let them think that it's mature faith. You've got to, again, encourage them. And I don't think that you push them out of it before they're ready either. That's dangerous too. But this isn't the end. If you get stuck here, it's, it's scary. Okay? Almost as scary as the next one I'm going to talk about. But after this, you get what we call searching faith. And we're going to call that faith adolescence. And whatever, when I say the word adolescence, whatever picture comes up in your mind, that's probably appropriate. Okay? This is faith where we examine or challenge our previous affiliative faith. We examine, I'll say examine and challenge, our previous affiliative faith. And this can be terrifying. Now, it can be terrifying for you as a parent. You as a person who sat and watched this kid and, and taught him in the Sunday school class. It can scare you out of your mind. And what are our gut reactions when that starts happening, when these kids start raising the questions of the things that, that we've held true, that we've tried with everything that we've got to teach them? What's our gut level reaction to what we want to do about that. You tell me. <coughs> I'm not asking what's right. I'm asking what's sort of the gut level response. I remember going through this stage. Okay, well, how do people treat you? My parents were just like, this is how it is. This is what's right. Don't question it. Yeah, don't question it. That's good. Period. Mm-hmm. I said, well, but, you know, what if, what if, what if, there is no what else. This is it. Okay, so, so there can be a tendency. And, and I, mean, I think that's a natural response. And I think that it's motivated in, in love and care even. We're scared to death. How can you, if you start asking those questions and you come to a different answer than we did, we could lose you, right? I mean, that, that's legitimate. It's not to talk bad about or down on those people. But the problem is, what that communicates... Hmm, I don't want to put this which is interesting since I just taught the class, but I don't want to this. Um, what it communicates is there's no room for questions like that. And the possible responses from the person who's asking the questions, because by the way, they're terrified too. Scared out of their mind because everything that their life's been built on to this point is now up in the air and it's legitimately up in the air from inside of them. They're wrestling with this stuff. And their response to that can be, look, there's no place for that here. This is reflecting my answer. There's obviously no place for me here. And so they go and search for truth somewhere else, and there's lots of people who claim that they have truth. Or, and this is just as scary, if not more so, they say, okay, well, then I won't ever ask any more questions. And they plug in 
They sit in the pews. They go through the motions. And have a faith that never really matters. But they do it. It actually reverts them back to the affiliate thing, right? Because I, I found out that my social relationships are threatened because of those questions. So defensively, I go back to this faith that has no substance. That's scary. It's really scary. And it's a legitimate reaction, okay? It's a legitimate reaction to, to be scared. It's legitimate to say, oh, I don't want to lose you. It's legitimate to even feel a certain level, level of almost anger about it. Are you, are you saying I'm stupid? This is what I taught you. Are you saying I'm dumb? And what we need to realize is this person is going to have a living and active faith. They have to wrestle with it. They have to wrestle with it. They have to make it their own. They have to. I remember when I was, uh, I told him my dad's a preacher. I keep saying my dad was a preacher, and then he hears like a recording of it sometimes, I'm still a preacher. So my dad is a preacher. Has been all my life. And um, so I was there, I was there every time the doors were open. I remember going to this um, this secular university, and I got my bachelor's from Troy State University, if you've ever heard of it, um, which you probably haven't. Um, I went to Troy State, and, and I, you know, one of the things I said is I would never go into ministry. And my dad was great. My dad was like on all the field trips, and I mean, he was with us all the time. I don't have any complaints about that. I had complaints about how churches tend to treat their ministers, and, and, and you know, worried about not wanting to do that to my family and not wanting to go through that and blah blah. But you know, here I am. So um, I go, I go up to school, and I'm going into broadcast journalism at, at the beginning, and. Um, I go to the little, I actually go to school in the town that I, I lived in until I was four. My dad was a preacher there. And so like at the church, everybody knows my parents, everybody knows away. And I'm walking in, and I don't even remember any of it, but all these old ladies are walking up, pinching my sheets and stuff. And um, yes, it's really weird when you're 18. Um, so I come in and I go to the church and I go to the little Christian student center place. And, and I was a moral kid, you need to understand that. Um, I frustrated my parents to no end sometimes, but if you looked at it overall, you'd say, it's a pretty moral kid, didn't get in a lot of trouble. Um, and I was going to be at church. I mean, partially because there would have been a phone call to my parents if I wasn't, but I was going to be there. I mean, it's just part of my construct of life, right? I go to a little Christian organization, and they pass out these sheets. Okay, it's called the Christian Students Center, if you've ever heard of this. Um, they pass out these little sheets. It's like, give me your class schedule, when do you have lunch, would you like to have lunch with minister, blah, blah, blah. And then it had this section that was like, what, would you, what did you do at, at the church that you came from, and what would you be willing to do around here? I wrote down, show up, period, and handed it in. <laughs> that was my faith at that moment. I was going to be there. I wasn't going to get into trouble. That's pretty much it. And um, <laughs> it's a good thing the campus minister's wife knew me from a long time ago and because he thought I was going to be a real jerk. Uh, and, and, and good times, that was at the time. But, you know, he, he, he sort of engaged me and, and, and really poured his life into me. And one of the things that he would do is we would come in and have classes and Bible studies. And, and his approach was, I remember this so clearly, his approach was, I used to think this. He's looking at the Bible the other day. He said this. Which makes me think this may be true instead of this. And it was just, the stuff that he said, the stuff that he landed on, like his answers, weren't even that important in that in that in that conversation. I mean, they were important, but even more important was that was that this guy taught me that the Bible is living and active and it matters. 
And, and he's one of the smartest guys that I knew at the time. And he was had this humility about, man, God's a lot bigger than my three-pound brain. I believe in God. I've got some ideas around <laughs> about him. But at the end of the day, me and my three-pound brain could be wrong with some of them. And so that engaged me. And then this one, this one freaks some people out. I joined this fraternity at the, at the college, and it was an odd, there's two international fraternities that are like this. Um, they have no alcohol or substances in their house, or at any cost. But other than that, it's a social fraternity. And so obviously that's going to draw a certain kind of guy to it, right? And so I, I wound up in this club, and I'm living in a house with these guys, and, and there are guys who are from all kinds of Christian backgrounds, and, and there's a Catholic, you know, there's a Catholic guy, there's some Lutherans, there's some Methodists, some Baptists, Church of God, you name it, okay? And the really interesting thing is that we wind up sitting around in a room, just more times than I can count, at like three o'clock in the morning, right? Everybody else is out drinking, we're sitting around talking theology, and we're just sitting around in this room, and it was the oddest thing, because the conversation, and that's what it was. Well, so what do you think? What do you believe? What do you think is true? Now, why? Why do you think that? And there were all these guys laying out different answers on the table and giving their reasons. And this was so contrary to what I thought. Right? It was so contrary because I thought that evangelism was you argue people into your answers and when they admit that they're an idiot and you're right, they're converted. <laughs> And what I found was, more people learned something from me in those conversations than any of those times where I felt like a failure and tried to say, you idiot, if you'll just see this. I didn't actually use the word idiot, but I might as well have. And I learned more than I ever would have any other way. You don't win an argument, nobody does, right? Those people walk away more convinced of what they already thought. So it's a pretty horrible model for evangelism. What I found was, I... During my college years, everything I believed was back up on the table down to the existence of God. I re-examined every bit of it. It was all back up on the table. And I found that through those conversations and through people pouring their life into me and sort of walking through it it with me, not being threatened that I was asking those questions, I found that there were a lot of things that I believed that I now believe more than I ever did. And I had wrestled with them. And some of them, by the way, that I never even came up with a why on. I never came up with a good why I could articulate, but I wrestled with it and it was mine. And there were some things, there were stuff other guys lobbed out, that I was like, let me see that. And wrestled with it. And found out that it was true, or at least more true, than what I'd already thought. And I came out with a faith Light years from what I came to school with, which was hard too. But it was mine, and it was living, and it was acting part of it. I wanted to sneak in ministry, right? And had no other option. I went to my dad thinking he was going to do backflips when I told him I was going to the youth ministry. My dad says, if you can do anything else with your life, you need to do that. And I was like, what? And he said, no, 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 you've got the, the skill set. You would do a good job at it. And he said, if you don't have this compulsion... It won't allow you to do anything else with your life. Don't do this. And he was thinking right, you know. And I would have quit a thousand times by now. 
would have thrown in the towel. But God just won't stink and let me do anything else, and I care what He wants. Right? And I don't think that every kid has to go into the youth ministry. I think God needs good bankers, doctors, and garbage men for living out the kingdom in that in that field. And I think they can even be more effective in ministry than I can. Now, I had to go through this questioning such. I had to. And I had to have people who would hold my hand and walk with me and not be threatened by it. Now, at the end of the day, and this is a scary thing, even if you do everything right, that kid's still got a choice. And they can choose the stupidest decision in the world, and they're free to do that. And sometimes they will. This would drive me nuts about that, that they let us do that. Now, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Nobody put that stupid tree in the middle of the garden. It's really just setting them up. Perfect life. Here's the keys. You know, that kind of thing, right? I, um, a couple of years ago, actually, this past year, I had this graduate class with a guy named John Mark Hitch. You may or may not have heard of the great guy. He's been through more pain than I even want to think about. But he said, and I hate using this illustration because it sounds stupid at the beginning, but it's such a good illustration I have to use it. He said they used to wonder about that, wonder why I got to put the stupid tree in the other garden room. And I would have the option of choosing the wrong thing. And isn't that just a setup? And he said he went to see this play, and it's a musical. I've never seen it personally, but it's a great illustration, so I use it. He said he went to see this musical called Starlight Express. And apparently the musical is about a train, and they sing, and they dress up like trains. I don't know. It doesn't sound like anything I've ever seen. But there's like this, and this is where it sounds even more stupid. There's this um, old school like steam or coal engine or something that's got this caboose attached to it, and they're cast like sort of a married couple or they're in love. That's weird. Anyway, along comes this newer locomotive type engine, this speed train or something, and there's there's sort of this conflict about whether the caboose is going to go with the other engine or the one that's been with. Okay, that's just stupidity out of the way. Now there comes a scene where. The, the older engine looks at the caboose and, say, and then they're having this argument because she wants to go, she's thinking she might want to go with the other train or whatever. And he says, I command you to stay. I demand that you stay. I order you to stay. You cannot leave. And the caboose has this great line. She says, if I'm not free to leave, then I'm not free to stay. If I'm not free to leave, then I'm not free to stay. And that's the choice that God had to put in it in the garden. It's the choice that He has to put in your kids. Because if they're not free to leave, they're not free to stay. And so you get to this point and it's scary because they can leave. And God has to do that because He loves them. So, where do we want them to get from there? We want to get to what I call... Uh, this is a necessary normal part, part of faith development. You don't need to avoid this. You don't need to try to avoid it. They have to go through it. Have to to have a mature faith. But do not get stuck here. Do not get stuck here. And I know people who are good friends of mine who still go to church every week who are still right here and they're the most miserable people I know. The most miserable people I know. Don't get stuck here. You don't want to rush them through it, but you've got to have another end in mind. This is not where they end. Now, the last one I, I call own faith, and I think that's what Anderson calls it too. Own faith. And, and here we're talking about faith adulthood again. I know 16-year-olds who have actually got here. Um, so, but this is own faith. It's characterized by security. 
It continues to search, and this is what you were saying before, it continues to search. But it's not threatened by those questions anymore. It continues searching, it continues wrestling and figuring out what faith means in this life, but it's not threatened. It doesn't say, because I'm asking these questions, my faith may crumble apart uh, and fall apart now. Uh, This guy I know, um, there's a friend of mine, he, he gave me this illustration a while back that's really changed, actually, the way I do youth ministry and everything. He said, you know, there's two kinds of Christmas lights. There's, there's a kind that one bulb blows and the entire strand goes out, right? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are wired in, in what's called a serial fashion. It's dependent on every single bulb for any electricity to be flowing. And he says, because those things were so annoying, they developed this other thing called parallel. It's wired parallel. I don't know anything about electricity, but I do know that it works like this. One of those bulb blows, one bulb is blown. The rest of the light stays on. It's because of the way it's wired. He says what we tend to do with faith, or what we've tended to do with faith, is we've constructed people's belief in God out of their beliefs about God. And when any of those beliefs start to crumble, the whole thing does. He says instead, and this is what I've tried to do, what if we said, okay, there's a God. He's real. He's not just real, he's good. And he's had the story of interaction. It goes all the way back to creation. And he had a son. And he cares about you very deeply. Now, beyond that, I've got some ideas about him. I've got some ideas about church. And they're based on scripture. But at the end of the day, I've got a three-pound brain. That's a lot bigger than that. And if you... Okay, as a teacher, I want these students to go farther than I've gone. I want them to engage with it more. I want them to learn more. I want them to be able to wrestle with scriptures in ways that I wasn't able to. I want them to learn things that I never got to. So if in that search, if I've done my job, I do that, and they care deeply about truth. If in that search, they find things that I taught them that somehow don't hold up and aren't true, aren't really true, even though I believed them when I told them, their entire faith doesn't crumble because they believe there is a God. He's good. He has a son. Look at it like this. Let's say you have this girl. She grows up going to your church. And she starts to get the idea. Nobody ever tells her this. But she starts to get the idea because of the way that we position ourselves that truth is only found in church. Okay? And everything else we come up with all these, you know, intricate arguments for, right? To defend. She gets older and graduates and goes to college. Goes to secular school like I did. But it doesn't really matter on some of this. She sits in classes with people who don't claim any kind of faith, with a teacher that doesn't claim any kind of faith, who's an expert in this field. Is there a chance that this atheist or pagan teacher might occasionally say something that's true? Like, all the time? And if she's grown up with this concept that truth is only found here, and you can, there's no truth out there, it's only found here. Well, she comes back a couple of months later, or a year later, and you wonder, what happened? Where did her faith go? We poured our life into this kid. And now she's saying things like, my faith just wasn't big enough. 
I outgrew it. What if we taught her? There's this philosopher named Arthur Holmes. He's got this great line, right? He says, All truth is God's truth. There is no other kind. Now, he's not just referring to things that claim to be true, he's referring to things that actually are true. And we say that God is true, therefore, whenever I find anything that is true, it must be of God. And Paul, by the way, the Apostle Paul, is brilliant at this if you read in Scripture. Brilliant at it. The really interesting thing is that when you find, uh, whether it's Paul or another teacher or Jesus or anybody, when they quote Scripture in the Bible, I mean, when they, you know, the New Testament is not written as they're doing the things written in it, right? So they're, they're living this stuff out. Do you know who they quote Scripture to? Let me give you a little background. Jewish males, uh, if, and I'm sure you all have this on your coffee table, there's, there's a book uh, of writings by ancient rabbis called the Talmud. Okay? And there's a question that they deal with, uh, when do we start teaching a child Torah, which is the first five books of your Bible, things that they send their life around. There's an odd little sentence in there that says, until a child is, I think it's six years old, we do not teach him any Torah. When he is six, between the time that he is six and ten, this is what it says. We stuff him with Torah like an ox. And by the time a Jewish male was ten years old, he could quote the first five books of your Bible. Completely committed to memory. There was this other level. The rabbi would go to the ones that he thought were the best of the best. And he thought they were really, really the best of the best. He would say, you, come follow me. It's a very specific word. Very specific phrase. It's really interesting when you deal with Jesus like that, by the way. And they proceed from there to the time they're 14 and memorizing the entire rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Women, by the way, memorized um, Psalms, prophetic writings like Isaiah, um, and there were reasons for that. Um, what's fascinating is when you find them teaching and they quote scripture, it's what the people they're talking to would have known, would have been familiar with. And when you find guys like Paul in Acts chapter 19 confronting people who have no knowledge of the scriptures, he doesn't quote them at all. What Paul does, and this is astounding, Paul quotes pagan philosophers, pagan poets, and points to an idol. Because Paul knows all truth is God's truth. And if I look in this stuff that's not written or espoused by the power of God, and I find something that's actually true, then it must be of our God. And Paul's able to grab that, claim it for God, and point to God with it. It's beautiful. Now I want you to imagine that same girl who's grown up believing that all truth is God's truth, being rooted in the story of God, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and she hears something that's true. And she starts saying things like, my faith just got bigger. That to me is really exciting. It's not threatened by these questions. It understands that I've got faith. But it understands that in wrestling, it just gets bigger. This is another quote by an author, actually, met him at the end of the week, which is kind of cool. Um, but he has this great quote that he uses all the time where he talks about when you consider a new idea, even if you wind up rejecting it, your mind is still expanded just because you consider it. If what you're actually interested in is truth. And by the way, if we're actually interested in truth, and this goes back to sort of your story, 
If what we're actually interested in is true, and we tell people, hey, that's my wife, everybody. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, if what we're actually interested in is truth, and then kids come to us or another adult comes to us and starts asking questions, and we say, hey, we don't ask those kind of questions. What does that communicate to them? See, truth is something that's actually true. Truth isn't afraid of any question we throw at it. Because it's true. It can stand. And if we say, hey, we don't ask this kind of question. We're questioning. What? We're questioning ourselves. We're questioning ourselves. It's like we're afraid. We're afraid it's going to crumble. It needs us to defend us. It's like God's over in the corner going, oh, wait, don't ask that. Well, don't worry, God, i got it covered. Uh, you know, is that really what we're saying? And these kids? They're sharp. I'll pick up on that quick. That kind of God needs you to defend him? That's not the God. <coughs> if they can't stand up to my questions, it's not the truth. And they'll quit asking. This is all faith. It continues to search, but it's not threatened by the search. The faith is going to be there. God is there. And he's not scared of my questions. It integrates faith and life. And, we'll go ahead and, this. and it forces us to move off of self to God and others. There's another aspect of the security thing that we've got to talk about, okay? You remember the story where the guy comes up and he's totally setting Jesus up, but Jesus is cool because he gives all these great answers, right? Even if they're setting him up. The guy says, what's the most important command in the law? It's a great setup, by the way, if you know anything about sort of the Jewish background. It's beautiful. And Jesus goes, well, you love God with everything you've got. And he's quoting the Shema, which is an ancient Jewish prayer that they quoted every morning and every night. That's actually a pretty good answer to this question. But he goes, and I think if Jesus had stopped there, like everybody would say, oh, that's pretty good. But, but he goes on. He says, you love God with everything that you got, and you love the people around you. He says neighbor, but he's fine neighbor later, and it's pretty much everybody. And then he says the most shocking thing in the sentence. Like if he got it out in the first part, they all would have been cool. I'm like, oh, maybe it's all right. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Now, at this point, that's all the scripture they got. So it says, everything that you consider scripture, it all comes down to those two things. Love God with all of your being and your essence. And love the people around you. Everything comes down to those two. By the way, where's the internal focus there? Where's the focus on yourself? There's not. Now, here's why the security thing is so important. And, and let me go ahead and say this, and get this up so you don't think it. I don't buy the whole once saved, always saved thing, okay? Just so you know, because you could misinterpret what I'm about to say. But not much. I grew up with this implication, and nobody ever taught this to me. My dad actually deconstructs it every once in a while. I mean, because he absolutely doesn't believe it. But there was this idea that every time that you sinned, or had an impure thought, or, or you know, every time you messed up, that your salvation was lost at that point and you had to do something to get it back. A friend of mine said your only chance was to die in the middle of a prayer. <laughs> right? And so there's an incredible sense of... Uh, as a side note, we also convert people just into an afterlife, right? We say, okay, you need to come become a Christian because... And here's how we tend to start. Because there's a hell and it's really bad. Let me tell you how bad hell is. Oh, and by the way, you really stink. And so, because you're such a terrible person and there's a hell that's really bad, uh, you need to do all this stuff. That's the pitch. I've never, I actually never heard one, I still wouldn't agree with it, but I've never heard one of those like, where they started, 
Let me tell you about heaven. It's really great. You want to be there. You want to know how to get there? I think it would be better. I still don't think it would be good. Now, I believe in the afterlife. I believe in heaven and hell. I think those things are true. I don't think they're the point. I believe in security in your salvation. I believe that the Bible teaches there are people who walk away from God and lose it. But I don't even like the word lose because it sounds accidental. Like, oh my goodness, where did my salvation go? I don't think it happens accidentally. I think losing your salvation as a Christian is a possibility. I don't believe it to be a probability. I don't think you're probably going to lose your salvation. I think it's possible. I think you can walk away from God. I think most Christians never do it. And that's why you have scriptures in the Bible that say this weird stuff like, hey, if they've been Christians, if they tasted the heavenly gift, if they tasted uh, what the Spirit does in their life, and they're able to walk away from that, can't bring them back. It's not picturing God saying, hey, you walk away once, I'm not taking you back. It's not a picture. The picture is God saying, I gave you everything I had. I've got nothing else to offer you. If you could walk away from it, what am I going to bring you back So, I believe that and Jesus says stuff like, you're in my hand and there's no outside force that's going to be able to take you out of my hand, right? Remember that from John? No one can pull you from my hand. You can walk. Nobody's going to pull you out. The problem is when we have this sense of salvation where I come to God, it's all about an afterlife, and at any moment I could have lost that unless I pray to get it back. Your focus never gets off yourself and saving your own tail. And I think we shot ourselves in the foot in Christianity by doing evangelism that way. Your focus never gets off yourself. You can never get around to what Jesus says is the most important about loving God with everything that you've got and loving the people around you because at the end of the day, it's all about making sure that you stay saved. And you wind up, and this is bizarre, but you wind up with people who say they're following Jesus who are more selfish than they were before they started. That's an oxymoron, you guys. How can you be more selfish following Jesus? But it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So I think that if we can get to this adult faith, we're secure in it. There's a God, He lives, He loves us, has Son. And now we're really wrestling to find out what's true in Scripture and what's true about faith. We're really wrestling with it, but our faith isn't threatened by it. Our salvation isn't threatened by it. That's not a pretty question. Read about the guys in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. See some of the things that they heard. Just read Psalms. That's the majority of Psalms. We talk about Psalms where like, there's the deer, pants for water, and it's lovely, like Andy. I mean, that's what we think, and that's what we think, right? <laughs> Beautiful, floaty stuff. The majority of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They're David saying, God, do you even care if I die? Somebody here's not doing their job, and it's not me. I mean, it's not like, where's, where's the lightning bolt? Moses. God calls Moses. Right? Burning bush thing. You remember that? He goes, Moses, you're the one. You're going to face you like that. You're the one. You're going to come. You're going to lead them out of, out of Israel. And Moses goes, God, you got the wrong guy. I can't even talk. And Moses continues in action the question over and over and over again. And with every question, if you read the narrative, God seems more convinced that he's got the right guy. Do you realize how scary it is for faith when we tell them that they can't answer questions? That's how sort of anti-biblical it is. We want them to get to this place where their faith is secure. 
where they can wrestle. Because in wrestling with that faith, that's where it means something. That's where it impacts the world. That's where it makes a difference. That's where your life actually becomes good news. And the good news isn't just information you have in your head that you're going to tell somebody, but they're also going to believe in their head that makes no real difference in the world. People of God are supposed to be good news. And I think you can only really start to do that when you get here. And I think we've got to start with this end in mind. Now, how long do I have? Man, i got to rush this. All right. I want to talk for just a second because this matters about the kids you're working with. I'm going to talk about cultural shifts. We're talking about epistemology, which is a word you use every day, I'm sure. Epistemology uh, <laughs> is basically philosophical theory of knowledge. It's just how we come to know what we know. How do you know things? Now, a couple things you need to know. A long time ago, we lived, you heard about the medieval period, knights and blah, blah, blah. Okay, in the medieval period, there was a specific epistemology, a specific way that people came to know things. And it was a cultural thing. It's not something that you convince people, hey, here's how you know things. Okay, now I can know things. That's not how it worked. It's just how people knew things. Do you know how it was? I know things because that guy told me. That guy in authority told me, and that's how I know it. And so there were these authority figures that were set up. It was in church, it was in government, it was everywhere. And you believe as a community because that guy said it. And as a community, you would interpret things. You would communally, uh, with this group, you believe because he said it, and you believe it because this group came to believe it together. And that's just how you knew things. There was, there was no personal Bible study. The majority of the people in the medieval time period were illiterate. There was no printing press. An entire village could maybe afford one copy of the Bible. And probably it wasn't even in a language they could speak or read. So this guy in authority is the one who can read it. He's the one who can tell you. And so you trust him. And that's how people came to know that. Now, later this thing called the Enlightenment or, and the Renaissance happened, right? After that, they started realizing, hey, we got this brain. It's pretty good. And we all got this reason that we can think this stuff out ourselves. This is a revolutionary at the time. And then people started, they did invent the printing press. And some people, most of them who got killed by the church at the beginning, interestingly enough, some people started translating the Bible into languages that people could actually read. Not just the Bible, but a lot of books. People are thinking for themselves. They're coming to find truth by themselves. The way that they know things radically shifts. And it's not good or bad. Do you understand that? I mean, there's a lot of positive things that came out of that. But one of them is not necessarily better than the other. You can't even talk about it in those terms. It's just the way things were in the world. This is the way people came to know things. And if you had, honestly, if you had tried to use sort of a, what we call modern, which is the post-enlightenment stuff, that's going to be a confusing word because we think contemporary when we hear modern, but that's not what actually it means in, in this context. But modern is sort of the post, uh, post-enlightenment stuff, where you've got all this reason and that's how you come to know things. If you had tried to use that method with a medieval person, you wouldn't have gotten anywhere with it. Because they don't come to know things that way. It has nothing to do with information. It's how they get to know the information. Now, also at the beginning, this, this took hundreds of years to make this shift. Okay, it sort of integrated in. Nobody was converting people to modernism. It just happened. Okay? Right now, we're in, we're in the middle of another shift. It, it has this clunky name called post-modernity, which is like horseless carriage because you don't really know what to call it, but it's 
like that and doesn't have a horse. It's like we know this after modernity, all right? That's all we know. I mean, we, we can pick up on trends, but we don't know what it's going to wind up as. We do know right now it's a very useful critique of modernity. And we start to see where even in our faith, we got confused about what was our, our modern epistemology and what was actually faith. We integrated those things. Um, which was appropriate to do at the time, by the way. But what I'm telling you is if you care, and there's a hundred places we go with this discussion, the one place we're going with this discussion is if you care about these kids and their faith, you need to be up on this. Because what I'm telling you is the way that you learn faith, and even to a certain extent the way that I learn faith, simply does not communicate the same thing anymore. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it doesn't communicate. I'm saying it's the equivalent of telling it to them in Japanese. Because they just don't follow it. Now, two schools of thought. Number one, you can devote a lot of energy and time into converting people to modernity so that you can convert them to Christianity. And there are a lot of people trying that, actually. The problem with it is I think it's not necessary. The gospel existed and was relevant before modernity, before the medieval time period. I mean, if you're really going to go with that, then you need to convert them back to a first century church mentality, right? Make them all learn Greek and Hebrew and they're made. The gospel can be true in any culture at any time. And what our job is, like Paul on Mars Hill and like Paul in a hundred other places, is to figure out how do I communicate in this? How do I let them know this truth? Because the truth is the same. But I've got to know how I can communicate this truth. In modernity, what we landed on was the idea of, okay, if I can just get you to sit down with me, and we'll go through this book, the Bible, and I'll show you where it's true. And so we prove. We have these bizarre things where we flip 80 pages back and say, see, it's obvious. But, you know, we would say, oh, sit you down and we'll run through this thing, the study, and then you'll know and you'll be convinced. And if that didn't convince them, they had all these other questions like, do you really believe that there was a big boat that all the animals got on? Really, seriously? Then, then we would go do apologetics. And we like, say, scientifically, <coughs> scientifically we can prove. You know what's happening now? Now people care a lot less if something is true than they do if it's good. They care, let me say it this way. They care a lot less, because I, I spin the word truth a little bit differently when I use it. They care a lot less if something is factual than they do if it's good. And in all of our posturing to convince ourselves in modernity, which was appropriate to do, don't, don't read me. I think it was what the church needed to do. I wish they'd done it earlier. But we devoted all our energy into proving that this was right. <coughs> that we sort of forgot about it being good. And I'm telling you that with these people and with these kids, you can prove it's right. And that's not enough. Because they want to know that it's good. And it is good. That's the thing, right? It is good. It, paint, it paints houses for people to use that analogy when, with nothing to gain. The gospel is embodied good news. We are good news to people whether they ever buy our ideas or not. Which, by the way, more of them buy our ideas if that's true. It's good. And I think we need to put a little more emphasis on it being good so that people will care about the true part. 
Because quite frankly, they're not going to. All our methodology goes out the window if we're not devoting attention to being good. And not just for an end, not just for a used car salesman. Eh, it's really good, I find it. Not just that. But that we actually are. That we're actually true to that message. That we actually live that message. And then you can get that. I also think I do not have... I'll get a little time, I'll do this. I also think that I'll start I also think... This, by the way, is true to our roots. If you read uh, Restoration Movement History... What you'll find is that Alexander Campbell walked around with a copy of the Bible and a copy of Thomas Locke's writings. Thomas Locke was huge in modernity, very big on reason and rationalism. And I think there's a lot of people that resent that about him. I think that that's absolutely what he should have done. He was absolutely engaging his culture with the gospel. What he should have done is what he did. is what he did that a lot of other people were doing. I think to be true to that heritage, what we have to do is figure out how we can do the same thing he did. And I don't mean use the same methodology. If Alexander Campbell, not that he's some saint or anything, but, but if Alexander Campbell, who did this wonderful thing back then, was alive today, I'm convinced he would be figuring out how to engage the culture and not just go back to that methodology. And I think to be true to that heritage, that's what we've got to be doing. A lot of times when you have uh, sort of a guy who's really important in the movement and kind of takes it in a different way, when he dies, what people tend to emulate is his crystallized belief at one point rather than the pioneering spirit that made him great. And I think the church has to figure out how we can make the gospel relevant in the same way that he did um, because he's actually a hero to me in that way. Now, really, really quickly, I'm going to run you through this because I also think, I think think we have to do this for the sake of the world because they need the gospel and they don't have to be converted to a previous way of thinking. I think we need to do it for the sake of our children. I'm going to tell you without any doubt, and this is a scary statement, if we don't learn how to do this, Generation to generation, we are going to lose our kids. We're going to. And we can hold on to things and keep them the way that, that we learned it and we liked it and lose our kids for the sake of just, yeah, Because that's what we chose to do. Or we can choose to live out this living and active gospel and make it relevant to the world. I mean, not make it relevant. I don't mean that because there's people who say, so you use guitar. So I want to say, I'm saying the gospel is relevant in whatever culture it's in. And we can hold on to our forms, we can hold on to our, the way that we learned it, or we can choose to engage it like it's always been done. Now, uh, it's a matter of faithfulness to God. I, I think we, there will be a question of faithfulness to God if we do not engage our culture with what he called us to do. I, I honestly think the church will have to answer for it. Now, really quick, I'm going to run you through this really quick because I've got ten minutes. I think that a key for, for the children that, that you work with, and it's been a key for me, it's totally rebooted, reinvigorated, uh, you've got to become familiar with the Bible not as an answer book. The answer book is the wrong metaphor for the Bible. It totally strips it of its power and beauty. The Bible is a story. Different genres, different authors. But it's this one story. Let me give you a couple of quick references if, if you want to go buy some stuff that will help with this. Um, there's a book called, just came out this month, it's called The Secret Message of Jesus, um, which sounds organistic, it's not. He actually deconstructs that too. But the reason he uses secrets is because he also talks about parables and stuff and why they weren't more clear than they were. Uh, Secret Message of Jesus is by a guy named Brian McLaren. I've seen that in every bookstore I've gone to in the last month, uh, even all the books that's there. There's another one called Simply Christian, by a guy named N.T. Wright. The initials N.T. Wright. Beautiful book. Beautiful book. Um, 
Those are two really, really excellent resources. There's some other stuff I got. Here. Yes. What was the author of the first one? Brian McLaren. McLaren. M C capital L A R E N. I met him at the beginning of the script. Really uh, good guy. Really neat guy. Um, both of those books would be a great place to start. Uh, great place to start. And we'll get, get both of those books will also give you a good feel for sort of the Jewish background and, and kind of flowing that all into it too. Brilliant. Uh, both of those I've seen everywhere I've been. Any book for Jewish book in the chat. That, that'll help you with what we're fixing to do. I think that you've got to root him in this story. Kind of watch how it plays out. This is the part where I'll just kind of say In the beginning, and I'm not really sure why. I don't really get it. Okay, I have some ideas, but I don't really totally get it. God decided to create the world and everything in it. And, and the interesting thing is, if you look in the first two chapters of Genesis, we have this idea that it was perfect. Nowhere in the first two chapters of Genesis does it say it was perfect. The word's not there in any language. The word says, and over and over and over again, it says it's good. It's the idea that God's crazy about what he made. And then he puts these people in the middle of the garden. Now, the problem is, when we think that it's perfect, we think that the setup was, okay, I'm going to put the people in the middle of the garden, but this is perfect, don't touch it. Your job is to maintain the perfection, because if you touch it, you're going to screw it up. That's how most people's story starts. If that's why your story starts, the rest of it shouldn't be in track with you. It's not the way my story starts. God puts him in the middle of, uh, of this creation and says, this is good. And he says, you guys are going to bear my image. I made you in my image. I used to think that meant the people sort of look like God. Like with arms and legs and fingers. Right? When you realize that at the time that that part of the Bible was written, there was a practice by kings. If they were kind of far away from their uh, from places they were ruling, uh, they would put a statue of themselves. It would, said to be, it would be said to be bearing their image. And it would remind everything around them who their ruler was and what his kingdom was about. So God was people to reflect himself to the creation around them that was good and loaded with potential. And he says, take this thing somewhere. Now they have the freedom to choose. We already talked about that, right? And so they do in chapter 3. They make a choice. And if you read the Bible what you'll find is everything spirals off course at that point. Not just people, but all of creation. It all starts going haywire. The language of the Bible changes after that. It's bizarre, right? They make that choice, and the language changes. The language starts picturing God as being very distant. Now, I'm not sure. I'm starting to think that maybe that wasn't pointing to what was actually true, but was expressing the people's perception of it. That God was here and now he's not. Because in the garden, God walks around with people, right? He walks around and talks with them. You got a question? God's right there. And that's lost in chapter 2. And so you get these weird passages in the Bible, like around the Tower of Abba, where it says that, um, so God would come down to the earth and check out what was going on. You know, see if what he heard was true. It's bizarre, right? Theologically, that's weird. But it's in there. And I think it's sort of, talking to people's perception of where God was. Now, eventually God comes and talks to this guy named Abram. He eventually changes his name to Abraham. And that's saying, you know, right? And he makes this deal with him. He says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you and your descendants, you're going to have a ton of them, by the way. I'm going to make a deal with you. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. 
I'm going to have a special relationship with you where you're my people so that you know me and you can reflect who I am to the rest of the world. And he invites them into this relationship. It was really kind of a weird deal since Abraham was really old and having kids. But the God of the impossible does the impossible. And the people are born. And the story tracks on for a while. And interestingly enough, the people of God wind up being a lot more interested in the first part of the deal, the getting blessed part, than the second part of the deal, which was being a blessing. So it was totally different than churches today. At that time, they were more interested in being blessed and not so much blessing to the rest of the world. And if you didn't get that, that was like that. So, the idea is they wind up they sort of get it for a while. God blesses them and it works and then they use that for selfish means and they lose it. They wind up in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses. We talked about Moses a little bit before. He goes in and he leaves the people out. They're wandering around the desert and, and, and Moses goes up on top of the mountain. The Ten Commandments feels the, the limelight in that when we talk about the Ten Commandments all the time. It's really important. But there's something that went on that was more, Moses was more pumped about than that. God has them build this sort of, this sort of tent. It's got a real specific floor plan. They call it a tabernacle. Actually, you know what they called it? They called it the tent of meeting. Which is really interesting because it was a relatively little tent. They couldn't put all the people in there. It wasn't like where we used to call church buildings with meeting houses or something. It wasn't like that. This was the idea that God and man were going to meet again here. That heaven and earth somehow overlap here. I don't think Moses could believe it because for the first time since the garden, God was going to be among his people again. Now, it's kind of a weird setup because I mean, eventually when they, when they get to a final place where they're going to land, right, when they stop wandering, they build a, a much bigger version, much more innate version than they call the temple. Still the same basic layout. Sort of a weird arrangement, though. One guy goes into the one part called the Holiest of Holies where they believe God is one time a year. One time a year. They tie a rope around the guy. In case he does something wrong and God strikes him dead, they can pull him out. It's historical research. You can find it. They believe that you couldn't even say the name of God out loud. The one guy who went into the part, the one part of the, the one time in the year, he was the only one who ever said it. They would change it in scripture so that no one would actually say it. Y H W H is how it's spelled. You provide the vowels and the speaker provides the vowels in Hebrew. But they would change it, and that's why most of your, your Bibles actually will say Lord there in all caps in the translation. So they wouldn't say his name. Now, God comes and he's with his people again in the middle of everything. With his people in the middle of everything. Then God does something that nobody believes. Nobody would have dared to dream of. I mean, this was, this was good, right? God's back among his people again. But God does something that nobody would have dared to dream of. God becomes a man. But he doesn't just like, he doesn't just like, a, oh, and he's like 25 years old walking around. Because that's the magic God way. Um, he actually, it's either that or the, the little vocal shout song from the little mermaid and singing that one. So. Um, he doesn't just do that. He becomes an embryo in the woman's womb. And he grows and develops. Get your mind around that one for a while. God grows and develops in the woman's womb. And is born in the same way that you're born. Only his is a little rougher because it's in a barn. Not only that, he's a baby. He depends on his mother to stay alive. 
He has to learn how to walk. God has to learn how to walk. Learn how to talk. I mean, this is what the Bible says, right? I used to think, I remember having one of those deep theological nine-year-old discussions where I'm like, you know, Jesus was born, you know, what a million times a million. I remember that. We have this concept that Jesus was born like the Superman. That's contrary to Scripture. The Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom. You hear that one? Jesus, God in the flesh, grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. That will mess with your theology for a little while. So he grows, he learns. And for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God's walking around with people. If you've got a question, you can ask him. He's right there. But then he gets kind of weird. He's got these 12 guys that kind of go around with him and there's some other people who follow him. And, and God's message to people, you know what it is? You know what? You can have this relationship with God. And he'll bless you. But that blessing is instrumental because he wants you to be a blessing to the world around you. There's a radically different way of life that I'm calling you to. It's not just a set of rules. It's a way of living. I want you to follow me. He talks about the poor. How you should care about them. The hungry. How you should feed them. He talks about this total reversal of how things are supposed to work. He talks about the kingdom of God, which, by the way, is not synonymous with the church. He's trying to make that work with the parables. It doesn't. It's more the idea of the reign or rule of God that breaks in here. It's the idea of heaven and earth overlapping in your life, in your sphere of influence. Jesus prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's parallelism in Judaism. He was saying the same thing twice to illustrate the point. Your kingdom come, and by that I mean, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life, that's going to be done. Then he has dinner with his father's one night. Says, guys, I'm leaving. Then he gives them this great lesson about love that they all miss. This is beautiful, like, servant on love, and then at the end of it, Peter goes, you said you were going somewhere? Yeah, yeah, you can't go with me. They freak out. Because God, for the first time since the garden, <coughs> you're walking around with us again, and you're leaving? He goes, no, no, it's going to be better for you. Better? We finally got this back. How can it be better? Well, there's something else coming, and you're not going to believe it. Because you see... They nailed God to two pieces of wood. And he suffocates. That's his lungs fell with his own throat. The world shatters. At least for the guys who bought into it, right? There'd been a, at least a half dozen messiahs, quote, on either side of Jesus. Got the Jews all upside. Instantly enough, the little Raven named Jesus. You know what happens when they die and many of them were crucified? You know what happens when they die? Their followers go back to their old way of life and hope everybody forgets about it. Or, interestingly enough, they'll find a close family relative like a, like a brother. That was a legitimate thing to do. Oh, it must have been him. And they follow him for a while. 
Very interesting argument for the resurrection, by the way. There are scholars who say that's the only way that Christianity could exist because it would have crumbled otherwise or they would have grabbed James. So he dies. Weird thing is, three days later, he's walking around again. Yeah, a lot. Walking around again. Physically. It's sort of an odd thing because they sort of recognize him, but they sort of don't. He looks kind of the same, but he's unrecognizable to some of them. And then they figure out who he is and they recognize him. He's physical because he touches people and he eats things, but he walks through doors and through walls. And it's almost like the writers of the Bible don't have the language to describe what's happening. Also interesting that they over and over again refer to it as a first fruits of what's going to happen to believers. He hangs around for a while. sees like 500 people talk to him. And he says, here's the deal, guys. I took your place on the cross so you could take my place in the world. Yeah, there's an afterlife, and you're going there, but I took your place on the cross so that you could take my place in the world. You do what I was doing. You make your life about what mine was about. There's a world out there that's lost and dying that doesn't realize that God has a dream for it. And God never gave up on this dream, not in Genesis chapter 3, not ever. He says, you become me. Corporately. Body of Christ. Remember that? You impact the world like I impact the world. And that's where we are. That's what the church is. You may disagree with me, and you're welcome to. I think what you th- how you think that story starts affects how you think that story ends, and I think it affects what you think the church even is. I do not believe the church to be this pristine thing that wasn't supposed to be touched, that we're just supposed to maintain. I believe the church is supposed to be the body of Christ, bearing the image of God to the world, being the gospel to the world. I believe we're supposed to be a catalyst for the kingdom of God, where God's will starts being done on earth as it is in heaven. 30,000 children die every night due to hunger and malnutrition. Do you realize that? 30,000 children. Is that the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven? No. But the body of Christ can do something about that. I've got kids that put change in a can every Sunday. And they send it to a little girl in Honduras. And in that girl's life, the kingdom of God breaks through. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven in that girl's life because where she would have died, she's alive. And when someday somebody tells her about Jesus, she's got something to latch on to because she has experienced it. Kids go out in this community and they paint houses with absolutely no reason and the kingdom of God breaks through. Do we have information in the message? We sure do. But it's more than that. The story ends, interestingly enough, and it starts ending in Revelation 21. It's a great passage if you read it. Freak you out a little bit. The story ends with God saying, Behold, I'm making everything new. It's a weird way to end, isn't it? I'm not, I don't have time and I couldn't do it justice. Really look at the way the story ends because I bet it's not exactly like you thought it was.
And it makes a huge difference to what happens in the store. Um, I've got some websites you can check out. I've done some stuff on this. Um, let me give you mine. You can switch them and that kind of thing for whatever they're worth. You don't have to look at them. Um, but I'll tell you this, and the reason I'm giving you this stuff is because of this. I heard a, a guy speak back in the fall, and he said it's true that we're formed by what happened to us in the past. Okay, and you all know that, right? What happened in your past, the past affects who you are now. He said it's even more true that we are more formed by what we anticipate in the future. In churches of Christ, and this is what scares me to death, in churches of Christ, our entire concept of the end or whatever God's doing is basically that the Baptists and the left behind people aren't right. And we have some vague sense that there's going to be some floaty heaven somewhere else. Which, by the way, lines up more with the teaching of Plato than Scripture, but that's just not. If you start looking, even in Churches of Christ, there was a much stronger picture of what the story was. Uh, Hicks, John Mark Hicks has a book coming out next month called um, Kingdom Come. This is Spiritual Legacy of James A. Harding and David Lipscomb, and he talks about that a lot. Um, study that out. Uh, if you want to look at my stuff where I talk about this on, uh, one of them is www.adamellis.blogspot.com. Um, you can get to a couple other places from there. Matter of fact, I'll just give you that. Uh, if you, when you go to that side, if you look up on the left, there are two sort of weird-looking picture buttons. One of them is to um, sort of a, a, a almost radio-style show that I do with a friend of mine where we talk about restoration movement kind of stuff and sort of playing it out in this new context. Um, and you're welcome to listen to that. We deal with a lot of different subjects. The other one is just in my teaching. Uh, it's called Join the Revolution or something like that. Uh, click on that, and either one of those, you can just stream them on your computer or you can download them, burn them CD, whatever. Um, I talk about a lot of this stuff in there. Um, so check those out, look at it, agree with me, disagree with me. Also, those two books I gave you earlier, Secret Message of Jesus and Simply Christian, they deal with it a lot. End of the story matters. It means everything. Figure out what it is, because it will shape, shape your life and your faith. It'll make a huge difference to your kids. Thanks for your attention. I could do a little over. Go eat lunch. I'm sorry. We were not I kept myself from lunch.